Hi folks, I'm Sina Hairi from UMA Health, joined here by Dr. Nancy Cheshire from the OBG Project and the second part of our podcast focusing on PPROM and PROM. And we felt that it would be better to focus this time around on kind of the clinical management of PPROM, but specifically some more nuanced cases. Nancy, welcome. Hey, Sina, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. It's always a blast. Yeah, it always is. Good memories. Yeah, it brings back memories from labor and delivery at UNC. So, <laughs> <laughs> good deal. So, Nancy, let's just like last time, let's just kind of dive into some clinical scenarios and just kind of have a casual discussion about it. And hopefully, the audience will find this valuable. PPROM and PROM management in themselves are becoming pretty well established in terms of latency antibiotics and you know some other practice uh, areas around that. I think one of the areas that folks often will call to ask for a consult or have questions about is some of the more nuanced cases. So let's talk about HSV in the setting of PPROM. Any thoughts about that, whether it's recurrent or primary disease on how you would go about managing those? Yep. So the, the first thing that to, to be considered is whether this is what the gestational age is, of the, because that's going to be a major factor in making recommendations to the patient. But to, to, go, to go back to your question is, if it's primary or secondary, we know that the uh, risk of infection to the fetus is higher in primary disease than in secondary disease. Makes sense. Probably the viral load is higher and there are no maternal IgG antibodies that can offer any protection to the, to the fetus, either in utero or, or intrapartum. And so if it's a primary infection, the risk to the neonate of HSV infection is certainly higher. The uh, secondary infections, the, the problem comes with discerning whether the patient has active lesions, in which case there are for sure viral particles within the vulvovaginal cervical area. The issue of asymptomatic viral shedding is where you really get into problems because you obviously don't know about it unless you do a culture or PCR uh, rather, and that takes a while to, to get those results. So in those cases where you've got a documented history of HSV in the past with ruptured membranes, that's an unknown. The gestational age issue becomes very important because you've got to make a decision around what the risk to the neonate is of a premature birth if she's preterm versus the risk of infection with administration of antivirals to allow for latency with the membrane rupture. And that's tricky. Certainly if she's at at term or late preterm, 34 weeks and beyond, certainly 37 weeks and beyond, I would err on the side of, of recommending a delivery at that point. Under 37 weeks, that's when the calculus gets a little bit more complex. Exactly. And I think just having done a cursory look at the literature before we did this podcast, what I saw was in terms of expert opinion for primary disease was delivery somewhere after the 28th to 32nd week of the pregnancy, exactly for the reasons you cited. There's a point where the risk of the HSV outweighs the risks of prematurity. And for recurrent, it was basically initiation of acyclovir and management of PPROM, essentially. Right. Another case that comes up, and I would love to hear your opinion on it, given your work in Africa, especially where the resources were limited, is in the setting of HIV. We talk a lot about HIV and PPROM 
thankfully, I think over the course of my generation and yours, it's changed a lot because now we get individuals that are coming in with undetectable virals, thankfully, whereas back in the day, it was a toss-up. But some thoughts about HIV and the setting of PROM, and maybe focusing a little bit on the patient that shows up unknown or you don't know what the viral load is. Yeah, that's tough. So we know that the risk of mother-to-child transmission of HIV is higher in the setting of pre-labor rupture of the membranes and prematurity. And so the, the risk goes way up. In women with untreated HIV, my recollection is there's a 40% mother-to-child transmission rate that's generally quoted. And obviously, as you've pointed out, the current management of HIV usually makes no patients who are under active management have an undetectable viral load. That's that's a separate conversation. But if you're dealing with a 40% transmission rate, then the likely recommendation, not entirely independent of gestational age, but probably using similar parameters that we talked about with HSV 28 weeks and beyond, I would recommend delivery. There is not great data, but that would be a reasonable place to land with the recommendation. Because neonatal outcomes after 28 weeks with the delivery tend to be fairly decent. The problem is you're not going to wait around for the steroids to kick in. So you won't have the neonatal benefit of having had corticosteroids. And then there's a debate amongst the neonatal folks, I think, to a certain extent, what is the true impact of surfactant versus steroids? I mean, steroids do have a very beneficial impact, but I think surfactant has definitely changed that paradigm a little bit too, in terms of where the true impact coming from. And one of the problems is going to be where where the patient is and, and what level of care, neonatal and obstetrical care, do you have at your institution because you're going to want to move pretty quickly to get this baby delivered within a short time frame after the membrane rupture in order to offer any benefit. Absolutely. Let's go to one that's, I think, very common to MFMs, especially those of us that do um, cerclages, PROM in the setting of a stitch. So you've got a patient coming in. And this one, I mean, I, I can tell you, I've always looked at the gestational age to make the determination on whether to take the cerclage out or not. But this happens a lot more commonly than we think. What's your practice pattern for having a stitch in the setting of PROM? This one's tough. In general, it's not possible to really make a, a firm recommendation because the data is all over the place. My practice has been if you've got PPROM, no evidence of labor, everyone looks good, no evidence of infection, and the stitch is obviously visible and gettable, so probably McDonald's as opposed to a Sherrod Car variant where that's going to be really hard to take the stitch out, I would leave it in place and start latency antibiotics and look for frequently symptoms of of increased pelvic pressure and such that might raise my concerns about pressure on that stitch and and damage to the cervix from it and take it out at that point or obviously if labor starts. But again, it's, it's gestational age influenced around what my management would be. If it's after 34 weeks, I would take the stitch out. Probably after 30 weeks, if I could easily get it, I would take the stitch out. And then for me, I mean, I tell you just based on my clinical practice, I use about 32 weeks as kind of the cutoff. If there's no evidence of choreo, if there's no, you know, more than four to six contractions per hour, I generally leave the cerclage in. But after 32 weeks, I think a lot of us are hard pressed keeping that in there and having it act as a nidus of infection. 
Yeah. I, I think it is recommended, though, that you use the typical latency antibiotics and don't continue them any longer. Correct. Just because you have the stitch in. Exactly. One thought that's come up, and it's been a little bit of a confusion over the last couple of years based on the new data that came out, is the use of latency antibiotics from 34 to 36th week of the pregnancy. You know, when I was training, I think we went off of, I believe it was Sue Cox's paper out of Parkland that taught us, you know, do latency antibiotics, go to 34, deliver at 34. Any thoughts on latency at 34 to 36, trying to prolong the pregnancy to like 36 or 37? Yeah, I mean, I think that's individual patient counseling is really important in this case. General recommendations, as you said, used to be just deliver at 34 weeks because of the risk-benefit ratio. And I think there is increasing evidence that there's benefit for continued in utero status until 36 weeks and six days, at which point it's pretty clear you ought to deliver them. But, you know, again, it depends on what your clinical practice setting is, what the patient's history is. There's just an obviously ongoing evaluations for presence of amniotis, which can switch things in a heartbeat. But this is a patient that I would keep her in the hospital if she's electing continuation of therapy or in euro until 36 and 6, I would hospitalize that patient. That's not a patient I would consider for home management. You nailed it on the head, though, that the practice setting does matter. And some of the audience members may just say, what are you talking about? Why wouldn't you deliver at 34? Why would you push the envelope to 35, 36, 37? And I can tell you from my standpoint, practicing telemedicine in predominantly critical access communities where the nursery at the best is going to go down to 1,500 grams or 32 weeks, where we know nursing shortage right now is impacting that nursery the neonatologist, the pediatrician are struggling a little bit. This is where you individualize. You counsel the patient, you sit down with the neo, with the OB, with the FP, with the midwife, whoever it may be, and you really individualize. And, you know, we have these, you know, decision analyses that guide the management of Vasa Previa for 34 or guide the management of delivery of Previa at this gestational age or even pre-prom at this age. But it is not beyond the realm of imagination that some of these patients can be taken out to 35, 36 in an inpatient setting being observed closely because you got to keep in mind the local resources. We do have patients that live about six, seven hours away from the nearest tertiary care center. And you can imagine if you put a baby in the NICU at one of those remote cities, the burden you're putting on those patients from a windshield time standpoint. So on a case-by-case basis, you can individualize this and safely get a good outcome for them. And I was kind of tied with this. We did a study for SMFM looking at these maternity deserts. And for example, a mom living in an Indian health reservation as of today, for the most part, is about six hours away from the nearest really tertiary care center or MFM presence and so forth. So the individualization on these scenarios with an informed decision made by the patient can be done. It it can be. And I think that we need to make sure that we check our own dogmatic thinking about this at the door. On the other hand, the clues and the clinical signs that things are heating up for that patient, that maybe there's a indolent infection starting, or maybe this is labor going, I think you have to have a very high index of suspicion. And after 34 weeks, if you've got concerns that, yeah, I wonder if this is early choreo, I would pull the trigger at that point. Yeah. 
And, and without question, this is going to be an area that's going to come up. Remote patient monitoring, RPM, is moving into obstetrics and it's moving pretty quickly. And one area with home fetal monitoring that's coming up that I'm sure is going to be a target for the industry is going to be whether or not P-promers should be able to stay home and have at-home fetal monitoring or not. So this that's going to be a good discussion, I'm sure, coming down our field. Yeah, I'm going to want to see the data on how quickly <laughs> yes. patients change because, of course, we always remember our last worst case. And, you know, the patient who you see at 8 o'clock in the morning on morning rounds with two weeks of prom sitting there looking very normal with normal vital signs, normal fetal monitoring, and two hours later, she's delivered. I know that happens. I've seen it. But the frequency of that is something that I think is is going to have to be worked out in order to inform decisions about remote monitoring. I got to tell you, if you haven't had a preeclamptic patient switch over into severe disease or health syndrome, if you had on a pre-prom or turned a corner on you quickly, then odds are you haven't practiced long enough. Those happen and they humble you every single time. Yep. Absolutely. Nancy, I really appreciate your time. Hopefully that was useful for the audience. And again, we will put a link to the PPROM entry on the OBG project. Any parting thoughts? No, I think we covered a lot of ground today. And of course, there's going to be some of these unusual cases that pop up that we didn't address. But I I hope the sort of general approach that we've talked about will help inform good clinical care. Thank you so much and wish you a great day. Thanks. Thanks.